Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. The UAW to the American public. Don't believe the corporate media. Strike deadline, 11.59 p.m. this Thursday. Today on the show, taking a stand on suicide, an expert who works with the trades. And we talked to a New York City carpenter on 9-11. Welcome to the Monday, September 11th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. This is the beginning of National Suicide Prevention Week. It actually started yesterday. So uh, what we're going to do this week is talk to various experts in that field. And we have a really, really good one today. Her name is Sally Spencer Thomas, better known as Dr. Sally. Dr. Sally is a clinical psychologist, speaker, inspirational speaker, I might add. She also hosts a podcast, And uh, she says she sees the world of mental health from many perspectives. She began her work in suicide prevention after her brother, Carson, died of suicide back in 2004. And she's going to talk about that on the show. She said after his difficult battle with the bipolar condition, which ended in tragedy, she searched for bold, gap-filled strategies to prevent what happened to Carson from happening to other people. She's put a lot of thought and research into this, and there's a number of groups that help people with suicide. Some of them use, or many of them, I should say, use what they call a canned off-the-shelf approach. She doesn't do that. She says she brings stories, science, and strategy to help organizations build a comprehensive approach, not a one-size-fits-all. She tailors it to the certain group or individual that she's speaking with. She offers a stratified, as she called it, a stratified training program at the basic and advanced levels and reinforce skill building over the long term. So she stays with you a long time to make sure everything is done proper. Dr. Sally's done a lot with the trades, sheet metal workers, iron workers, pipe fitters. She's co-founder of Construction Working Minds, a program that deals with uh, training people to help others deal with mental health and suicide. She's co-founder of the award-winning Man Therapy campaign, also co-editor of Guts, Grits, and Grind, a book series about men's mental health. Website is sallyspencerthomas.com. I urge you to go to that, sallyspencerthomas.com. So she'll be our first guest on the show. Our second guest on the show today is Paul Caperso. Now, Paul is president of the New York City District Council of Carpenters. Website is nycdistrictcouncil.com. They have about uh, 20,000 members in the District Council. And Paul was one of the many people in New York City on this day 22 years ago when the planes hit the Twin Towers. And we're talking, all told, 3,000 people losing their lives on this day is the uh, worst attack on American soil in our history. He'll talk about that. He'll talk about the rebuilding and also talk about the New York City District Council. Also, we have to point out, there are right now 74,000 people, hard to believe this, 74,000 people struggling 
with illnesses or injuries caused by those attacks who live in every state and 434 out of the 435 congressional districts. Right now, the health care and medical monitoring that they rely on is in jeopardy. The World Trade Center Health Program is facing an impending budget shortfall. Why? Increasing costs and enrollment, and unless Congress acts, new applicants may be denied enrollment in the program. Services for current participants could be reduced, and some of those heroes on this day 22 years ago who were active duty military or civilian federal employees will continue to be denied access. This is the uh, Bipartisan 9-11 Responder and Survivor Health Funding and Correction Act of 2023, H.R. 1294. That's in the House and in the Senate, it's 569. That uh, legislation would ensure that the program gets the funding it needs and that all responders can enroll. It's so sad that Congress has not uh, picked that up yet. So Paul Caperso, president of New York City District of Council of Carpenters will be our second guest on the show. Unions in the news, making news. This labor update brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management, offering fixed income real estate and equity investment options to clients nationwide. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. The UAW released a new video over the weekend that shows how some in the corporate media are parroting pro-company talking points in the reporting on negotiations between the union and the big three automakers. I urge you to go to the uh, website. It's uh, uaw.org. Well, in that video, Sean Fain, president of UAW, debunks a September 5th NBC nightly news story claiming that auto workers, because of what they're asking for, will drive car prices higher. Faye notes that over the last four years, the average price of a new car has increased by 30%, while auto worker wages, well, they have gone up only 6%. During that time, the big three have made massive profits. They made a combined $21 billion in total profits in just the first six months of this year. Fain says in the video, but you don't hear the media wringing their hands over how big three profits are driving up the cost of cars. You don't see big, splashy nightly news segments on how consumers will be impacted by companies choosing to spend billions on executive salaries, stock buybacks and special dividends. No, 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 no. You only hear these concerns when the working class stands up and demands a fair share of the value that we produced. The big three CEOs average 40% raises over the last four years, and UAW members are demanding 40% increases over the next four years. Makes sense, right? The call for double-digit increases comes after years of stagnant auto worker wages that were pretty much wiped out by inflation. In fact... And on a worker today, starting salary, you're actually making less than the auto worker in 2007. What was that, 16 years ago? When you adjust for inflation. When they talk about stagnant wages, that's a good example right there. Now, the UAW gave the big three its core economic demands, the members' demands, more than a month ago, but only in the last week did Ford and General Motors come back with counter proposals. In separate statements, Fain has called the Ford offer an insult 
to our very worth. And the GM proposal, one that does not come close to an equitable agreement for America's auto workers. In response to GM and Stellantis dragging their feet in the talks, the UAW at the end of August filed an unfair labor practice charge against both companies for bargaining in bad faith. So now, with just days to go, the big three automakers are calling on the corporate media to scare the public about what could happen if auto workers stand up for our families and our communities and walk out on strike. Again, the strike deadline, 11.59 p.m. September 14th, which is this Thursday. Do check out that video. In fact, their uh, media department is really working overtime because they have that video. And I talked about this last week on Thursday. The uh, video Justice for Belvedere, which captures what they call the heartbreak and hope of workers at an Illinois assembly plant, which was idled by Stellantis earlier this year. Despite making almost $15 billion in North American profits, that's North American profits last year, Stellantis suspended operations at Belvedere, laying off about 1,300 workers. You know what they're doing? They're going to move production to Toluca, Mexico. Yep. Don Sims. 24-year assembly worker at Belvedere, a member of UAW Local 1268, said, you're destroying families. You're destroying relationships. You got your record profit, you know, but at what cost? Over the last two decades, the big three have shut down or spun off 65 plants. While the Belvedere shutdown is a familiar story, the UAW's aggressive and creative response to it is not. In ongoing contract talks with the Big Three, the union has made Belvedere a centerpiece of its proposals to stop plant closures. Those include the right to strike over shutdowns and a working family protection program that would keep product in the plants and workers on the job. The UAW has also pushed for the federal government to invest in programs that will boost domestic manufacturing and encourage the retooling of big three plants to produce electric vehicles. Just about a week ago, the U.S. Department of Energy announced a $15.5 billion program for grants and loans that would support the conversion of plants like Belvedere for EV production. So between, you got the government subsidies for EVs and Stellantis' record-breaking profits, the money is there to bring good jobs back to the heartland. You know, towns like Belvedere. UAW supports the transition to EVs, but it must be a just transition that supports good-paying union jobs, not a race to the bottom. And when you take a look at the profits here, Collectively, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, those three, made $250 billion in North American profits going from 2013 to 2022. And in the first six months of this year, this is mind-boggling, in the first six months of this year, they raked in $21 billion in total profits. They're making money, but it's certainly not going into auto workers' pockets. No doubt, no doubt. All right, we're going to take a uh, quick break. By the way, do check out those videos, uaw.org. When we come back, Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas, 
on suicide prevention. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWaterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at Teamster.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Real simple, AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, where you can find more at ulagency.org. Let's go to the state of Colorado right now. And joining us on our live line today, as I indicated at the top of the show, Yesterday was the start of National Suicide Prevention Week, and uh, this week we're going to pepper as many shows as we can with experts to deal with this issue. And joining us on our live line right now is Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, and her website is sallyspencerthomas.com. She's a clinical psychologist, inspirational speaker, podcaster as well, and uh, she writes... I see the world of mental health from many perspectives, and we're going to talk about that. And Dr. Sally has a uh, personal story to share on how she got involved in uh, suicide prevention, and she'll talk about it on the show. So, Dr. Sally, is it best to call you Dr. Sally? How, how do you want me to, to address you here on the show? Uh, you call me whatever you want, Ed. Dr. Sally's fine. Sally's fine. Whatever works for you. Okay, good, 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 good. Well, what I'd like to do, especially with new guests, is to uh, get familiar with you, who you are, how you got into this field, and obviously, a little bit later on, what you do. There are right things to do, and there are wrong things to do. I want to talk about all of that, and you've got incredible credentials here. I was looking at all the things that you have published over the years, co-founder of Construction Working Minds Program Training and Summit, co-founder of the award-winning Man Therapy Campaign. I know this is very male-oriented here. Co-editor of Guts, Grits, and Grind, a book series about men's mental health. And we have a lot of the trades that listen to the show, and suicide is pretty prevalent in the trades for a number of issues that we've discussed. But Dr. Sally, talk to me about your story. I understand uh, it's very personal. I'm going to let you pick it up from there. Yeah, thanks, Ed. So... 
Well, I'm a psychologist by training, and I had been in the field of mental health uh, quite a long time. Um, my before and after moment happened when my brother died by suicide on December 7th, 2004. He was a, a business leader, a father of two. I know by all external counts, people saw success and magic, and he was athletic, and he also fought a lot of really uh, crushing depression behind the scenes that no one really saw, um, a depression that ultimately proved to be fatal. And the last time we spoke, um, we knew he was in trouble. Uh, he had had a really rough number of months. He had suffered some business losses. He had you know, been estranged from the family. But he came back to us, and um, the last time we saw each other, he really told me that what was really driving his hopelessness was that the world was not accepting of him and uh, of living with a mental health condition. And he called it his madness. Um, and so, you know, my my charge, my calling, if you will, after his death was to make sure that other people, especially other men who might be falling through the cracks, who might be suffering in silence, know that there are there are pathways through this. There are other people that have gone through similar things. There are things that can help you through your pain. And to really try to to eliminate the bias and the prejudice and the discrimination that our, our our workplaces in particular have about people who are living with mental health issues or who are living with suicidal thoughts. Did he try to get help during this time? It sounds like this was going on for quite some time. He actually did seek a lot of help. So unlike the kind of prototypical person who dies by suicide, who's a a man in the working age who has one attempt and it's fatal, that that kind of prototypical person uh, usually has not stepped foot in any type of mental health resource. My brother had been seeing uh, therapists and psychiatrists off and on since he was 19. So he tried a lot of different things, uh, self-help, medication, therapies, all kinds of things his entire adult life. Uh, The last episode that he had was particularly brutal. Um, and it was very public. So while he was able to maybe hide some of his symptoms from, you know, the inner circle people knew, but from his clients and uh, some of his friends, the last episode he had was pretty public, and he was just, you know, very ashamed of that. So that obviously propelled you to do something. Can you yes. give us some details? Because that well, obviously that was it was game changing. It was life changing yeah. for you. This was your brother. You, I mean, you grew up with right. him, and you you lived right. through that time of of mental anguish, and then he took his life. What did you do? Can you explain that? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now that are wondering. Gee, I mean, this happened to me. Maybe maybe right. I should listen. Maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. What did you do personally? Well. As we were all just reeling from this loss, he was a very, a very special person to a lot of people. Uh, we called him the Pied Piper. Just people loved him. They were drawn to him. So his death had a kind of a tsunami effect on our family and his circle of friends and colleagues. And literally on the night of his death, his um, good friend Sean called my brother's wife and said, "Oh my God, what do we do?" And she said, "Let's not be. Let's not let him be forgotten." And so just a month later, we pulled together and we were on conference calls and some of the time we were crying and some of the time we were laughing because my brother was really hilarious. Uh, and then we just resolved to do bold gap filling work and prevent what happened to Carson from happening to other people. 
And it was at that time that we started to do that research and find like, oh my gosh, the people who are dying are working age men and they're not accessing mental health care and they're dying on first attempt. Where do we find them? They're out of the education system. We find them at work. And that was kind of this aha moment of a gap filling place that the workplace is the most cross cutting system we have to get these most at risk people. And so we started to row in that space and we've developed programs and strategies and talks and all this stuff, but we really couldn't get a lot of traction until we started to get a couple of um, clients in the area of construction and first responder work. And then things started to click. We saw people getting great results um, because they had uh, untapped issues. You know, they had gaps that were needing to be met about how to change this conversation, how to get people who are so tough uh, so stoic and self-reliant to raise their hand and say, I need help. How do we get them to help each other? How do we make sure that their resources meet their needs? How do we change culture? Like these are big issues that a lot of these you know, male-dominated fields were having a really tough time doing. So once we got the case studies and then we had the data that showed that male-dominated industries, in particular construction and extraction and transportation and manufacturing, um, all had significantly elevated suicide risks, and now we know also elevated overdose risks, um, there was a, a hunger for answers. Uh, and that is really where the things have uh, taken off. So since you're zeroing in on a certain population, you mentioned the trades, construction workers, and I get it. We we talk to a lot here on the show. I've been hosting this show for 25 years, and there's many that have come to the table. Many unions have developed their own programs, probably working with you. <laughs> that could be could be very well the case. But it's that tough guy image, you know. Wow, you know what? I'll get through it. I don't need any help. I'm going to get through this. Not a problem. Just give me another beer. Okay, maybe maybe some pills will help out. And, and then you mentioned first responders, and I think of that, oh, my gosh, there's a story, and I want to share this. I never talked about this on the show. This was about two, maybe three years ago. This was a policewoman who had just joined the force, and she saw a horrific, horrific tragedy where it was an individual who killed her own kids, and it was just, I mean, she was not ready for that. And right. the next day, she took her own life because it had such an impact on her. Is, is this what you're seeing? Especially, especially there's some horrific images out there that people, especially first responders, firefighters, police at sea. And I guess yeah. they need some kind of a release, don't they? Well, let me just address that particular situation you just described. It is very uncommon that there is just one event that happens and that flips someone over to take their life. There's often a precipitating event, but there's usually a lot that happened before that event. It's rarely just one thing. So my I guess see. is that there were other things that that was just the tipping point for her. So I want to clear up that narrative because a lot of times people are like, they just snapped. Mm, not so much. People don't just snap. There's usually a lot going on. You might not be privy to all the things that are going on, but there's a lot going right. on before that moment. Um, so, yes, there's a lot of the tough-minded cultures uh, that have to be tough. For the work that they do, they have to be courageous. They have to be persevering. They have to endure a lot of pressure. Um, that's their superpower. It's not the everyday person that signs up for work like that. So this is the underbelly of that superpower. When you really value your toughness and your ability to solve problems and stick it out through really difficult things or face things courageously that other people will never face, 
um, your underbelly is that when you have a vulnerability, like a mental health condition, a trauma, an addiction, uh, you know, all these things, it is very, very challenging to reach out. But here's the good news, and here is why I love working with the unions. You already have this value of we've got each other's back. We look out for each other. We advocate for each other's well-being. This is the core of who we are. And that works so well when it comes to promoting well-being because Mm -hmm. maybe I don't need to learn this about for myself, you might think, but I want to learn how to do it because I want to help somebody else. Well, guess what? As you're learning about things to help someone else, you've got to learn about things to help yourself. Uh, right. So it's it's a great way. It's a great door that gets opened, and we have just seen so much hunger, but also enthusiasm, especially for some of our folks that have lived through these things. They're in long-term recovery from alcoholism. They're, they have had trauma in their life. They have had a suicide attempt. They are in a place in their recovery now where it's all about making meaning. They want to give back, and they want to help the next person who's suffering to suffer less than they did, and they learn, they, they share their life lessons, and they're not acting as counselors, they're not acting as therapists, they're just walking along a path um, with someone else who's, so they're not so alone, and it's some of the most inspiring work I have ever, ever been able to do. So... I get the sense you work primarily with unions then. I mean, is that the the bulk of your clientele today? Absolutely. Yeah. And certainly the ones that are scaling. Like we've had these little pilot things that have happened with like the uh, United Association of Pipe Fitters and the Sheet Metal Air Rail Transportation Union and now the iron workers. Like we have these small pockets of things that happen because there's a, a visionary leader that gets involved and wants to make something go. And then it scales. Uh, so that's been super exciting, especially with the pipe fitters. We um, started with a very specialized program called the Veterans in Piping Program that helps our active duty military transition into a trade. And it went so well with this really small program that now we are scaling across, you know, hundreds of locals in the United States and Canada. So it's it's very cool. The, the, when I step back and think about the potential impact for all of this. It's not only the workers, it's their families, it's their communities that this spreads to. I am just so over overtaken with gratitude. It's funny you bring up the UA, the uh, pipe fitters. Uh, Mike Hazard, name his mm-hmm. name comes to uh, light here. Isn't he a great guy? He's my man. He's the dude. <laughs> I, I, I share a short, funny story about him because it's hilarious. It's hilarious and tragic at the same time, if that's possible. So okay. I, had a, I had a training in a fire station uh, for fire, firefighters in the Columbus area. And it was a workplace training. It was a full day. And we're going around the room doing introductions. And it's this firefighter from this Ohio department and this firefighter from Cleveland and this firefighter from Cincinnati. And all of a sudden I get, yeah, I'm a pipe fitter from Idaho. And I'm like, one of these things is not like the other. And it was Mike Hazard. Um, and he was he had flown out after just Googling what's workplace suicide prevention happening. And he Googled and he flew out. And there he was in my training with a whole bunch of firefighters. And he said to me at the end of the training, he said, I don't know what yet, but we're going to do something with this. Um, they had experienced a loss that was very touching to that community. And uh, a couple of years later, he got it going on the Veterans and Piping program. And then he has been absolutely the Energizer Bunny behind scaling it throughout the UA. So Mike Hazard is 
a genius, uh, a visionary, and a, and a chess player all together. <laughs> he's a great leader in this space. And he's a big fan of the show, so he's probably smiling right now, Dr. Sally. <laughs> and he's also super humble. He's super humble. So, But, yeah, he and, and Nicole uh, Dupe, who's been um, you know, the, the woman that gets all the stuff done that is his partner in crime here, the two of them, but the impact that they have had is just phenomenal. Good people. Definitely good people in the trades. Well, I'll tell you what, we have to take a quick break here. Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas joining us on our live line. She's a clinical psychologist, speaker, podcaster. We're talking about uh, suicide prevention. Yesterday was the start of Suicide Prevention Week. We'll continue the conversation right after this. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylights and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit SurveyAndBallotSystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And don't forget, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. When you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always, always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. All right, let's go back to our live line, rejoin Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas. SallySpencerThomas.com is her website. She's a clinical psychologist. We're talking about suicide prevention. What she does differently, she works with a lot of unions, primarily the sheet metal workers, the iron workers, and the pipe fitters. There's also some electricians and firefighters in there. And she's developed a very comprehensive program to... uh, Help people out because, especially in the trades, it's uh, anywhere between three to five times higher suicide. I'm talking about than the general population, and a lot of that has to do with people that they're 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 tough guys. They're tough guys. There's more females entering the profession, but it's still pretty much male dominated. Same goes with firefighters, and they don't seek help. There is help out there. That's the important thing, Doctor Sally. I saw on your website how you are different. And obviously, the unions love you. You are making a difference. And there are some programs that work, and there are some programs that work better than others. And obviously, you do things a little bit better than others. 
let's let's if we can get into some of the things that the do's and don'ts and programs and maybe that you should run away from. I, I don't know. How, how, are you, how do you see this? And, and maybe you can give us some details on what actually works for people. Go ahead. Oh, wow. OK, so first of all, I just also want to mention women in construction. Mm-hmm. also have high rates of suicide. When we look at all the other occupations, construction in particular, have, um, have, w- women have high rates of suicide in construction. So the women are also at risk in, in a lot of our unions as well. Um, I, I actually think I want to take this in, in addressing what unions can do that's particularly important and impactful. And I, and I mentioned this um, in the first segment that peer support is, a really powerful opportunity within the unions. It's already connected to that core value of we look out for each other, we care about each other, the brothers and sisterhood, it matters greatly. It's the essence of who you are. Um, You can build formal peer support programs, and this is what we're seeing as the wave of the future that is definitely the gap-filling thing that we need in this chain of survival. Peers have equal status, so there's not like an authority figure that people are worried about. Is this going to impact my career? Is something that could give me, you know, opportunities because of this? Peers have equal status, and they also have shared lived experience. So maybe they haven't gone through the exact same thing you've gone through, but they've gone through something similar. You know, maybe they've had a breakup and you're going through a divorce, or maybe they've had a loss or a health scare. They have some kind of shared life challenge or experience with a mental health condition. So that connection is profound for people. You know, and when we ask people, like, what's their likelihood of going to mental health services? You know, sometimes there's hesitation about time and money and are people going to understand me and is this really going to be helpful? But when it comes to a peer, like someone who's like me, but maybe a few steps ahead of me on the path of recovery, that seems like a pretty trustworthy person. So when we are developing these peer support programs, we look to recruit people that have maybe a natural inclination for listening and supporting people. They have that lived experience and they're well in, well in the journey of their recovery. They've been at it for a while. They know a thing or two about the resources out there. and They're trustworthy with their peers. And then we train them. We train them on what the boundaries of peer support are, uh, how to understand the resources in a more deep way if they haven't already um, tried them out themselves. We talk about how to listen well, how to engage people in these difficult conversations, and know how to be a warm bridge into a next level of care if someone's in crisis or needs more formalized support. Um, this is the powerful way that unions can play a role in helping those folks that are falling through the cracks. They're just not able to reach out on their own, but they might talk to a trusted peer to start that first step into their recovery. So that's definitely Mm -hmm. a do, and I wouldn't just do it willy-nilly. There are definitely do's and don'ts within setting up a peer support program. Um, You know, some areas are worried about liability. Others are worried about, are we going to recruit the wrong people? And that's more than I can share in a short podcast, but peer support is a definite do. (laughs) I noticed that there's some organizations that do what's called a canned approach. That's something, oh, maybe it works somewhere and we're just going to kind of homogenize it and use it elsewhere. I get the sense in this conversation with you, Dr. Sally, that you pretty much, you got to get acquainted with the specific group. And let, let's use for an example, ironworkers. You go into the ironworkers hall, you got to get acquainted with them and you kind of tailor the program after after meeting with certain individuals there is am, am i correct in assuming that 
Oh, absolutely. You look at me and I've got absolutely zero creds in terms of any of these tough-minded people's world. Like, absolutely zero. I'm a, I'm a girly do-getter, you know. That is, is not the same lane. And so I really do need to take time to listen, understand where, the, where their pain points are, also where their strengths are, what they're doing well. Um, and then I... I reflect back what I hear. And so they know that I am really working hard to understand where they're at and what they want from this. Uh, and then, yeah, we, we um, do whatever we can do to incorporate their stories, their resources, their, their tools, like all of the things that they have already built and then stretch into the places where they have described their pain and offer solutions there. So absolutely mm-hmm. customizing our trainings, um, our, our keynotes. Um, we have uh, different programs like uh, Toolbox Talks and uh, microlearning videos where we add their QR codes so that the people who are viewing them or sharing them can be driven exactly to their web page where they get their, you know, employee assistance program or their health benefits. Uh, and, and that's also been great because once they see uh-huh. kind of their fingerprints all over it, their data, their stories, then again, it's, it's hard to say that this is not about us. Yeah, there's no uh, such thing as a one-size-fits-all type of formula in this kind of thing. And you really, really have to customize it and work through it. So once you once you work with that specific union um, and you feel comfortable to let them go, do you, I imagine that there's some communication for uh, some degree of time afterwards to make sure that everything is going smoothly as possible. Is that right? Well, there's it's a relationship and it, and it evolves over time. So usually what comes through the door first is sometimes there's been a loss. You know, there's been a tragedy or a near miss and people are shook and they, they want to address something right away. And so we're going to give them that right away thing uh, to mm-hmm. start the process where the momentum is. But usually there's a lot of other pieces. And we look at what we call upstream, midstream, and downstream approaches. So upstream are things are like, what do we need to do to change the culture so that people don't have to die in isolation and despair? What do we need to do to change how people feel and think about proactively reaching out when they're having a mental health small problem that's emerging and not waiting until it's catastrophic or like we say stage four mental health emergency how do we change the culture and then midstream is what do we need to do so that people can get a buffet of options not just one but a buffet of options when they are ready to take an action step. So is there, uh, is there therapy, but is also that maybe get them to a 12-step group or maybe get them to bereavement support if they have lost somebody? How do we give them that buffet of resources in a way that seems trustworthy to them? What kind of training, what kind of self-screening might we do? Um, what kind of peer support program might we build? And then downstream is when, when there is a mental health emergency, like a, a suicide attempt or death or an overdose or near miss, is, is that local ready? Do you have policies mm-hmm. in place? You know exactly what to expect when you reach out to the crisis resources. How do you provide grief and trauma support when there has been someone who's lost? So that's kind of the arc of the whole spectrum of things. Um, the other piece that we try to do is, of course, we never want somebody to be reliant on an outside entity. That's not sustainable. So we really work to build capacity with inside the organization so that they can carry forward this work independently. So again, that's where the building up that formal peer support comes into place. 
we train trainers to be certified to deliver a training to their own people. Um, lots of little things like that that they start to start to own this program and really um, customize it to their to their members. I could only imagine you get calls when something tragic happens. I mean, that's the way that's the way the world is. And they say, well, we better bring an expert in here. Probably it's best this being Suicide Prevention Week. They should contact you and have a program in place just when that day happens. So they're prepared for that. Are, are unions are, is anybody doing that right now? Dr. Sally. Yes, more and more. And that tells me that we are reaching some culture change milestones because if if we're only getting calls after the tragedy, people are still being very reactive and we want them to be proactive so that they don't have those tragedies. And so now that it has become, I would say, a hot topic, a hot topic with a lot of unions, once they realize the data were there, you know, there's a lot of problem solvers out there. There are also people who are trying to position themselves as the place to be good to work. And these are all parts of that equation. So now when we're finding that people are not waiting for the tragedy, thank goodness, um, but they're trying to really up their game. They're trying to be the first ones, the first ones to have, you know, the formal peer support program in their state or the first ones to have uh, a specialized mental health resource for their people. Um, that's really cool stuff. When, when people start to uh, compete with each other on who can do mental health stuff better, bigger, and more, it makes me very happy. Um, so that's what I'm seeing moving forward is that this work is going to continue to evolve. It's going to continue to strengthen. We're going to figure out some nuances. For example, um, you know, one of the things I learned from the first responder work was it wasn't your everyday mental health professional that could do a good job. In fact, it was often uh, a huge bummer for the firefighter to go to their city's EAP and meet with a provider who knew nothing about fire service. And so what emerged out of that probably three three decades ago was that psychologists that specialized in law enforcement or specialized in firefighters started to emerge. And I see that as the wave of the future for a lot of our industry work, because, again, yeah. building that trust, you got to know a little bit about these industries for you to actually be able to serve them well. Exactly. Exactly. Good conversation here. Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas. Definitely check her out online. SallySpencerThomas.com. Okay, we got a pretty good audience here. And I want to tell you, we're doing really well with our podcasting. And maybe maybe another show we could talk about your podcasting as well. But uh, uh, you better be ready for some more people to contact you. Is, is it best to go to the website? Because we got a lot of trades that listen to the show. Is that is that the way to go right now, Dr. Sally? Yeah, that's probably the best. Just, yeah, sallyspencerthomas.com. If you are a construction trade person, we've got constructionworkingminds.com, and that'll give you all kinds of other cool stuff specific to construction, including our summit that's coming up in February. All kinds of great stuff. Good stuff there. Well, thank you so much for your time and your dedication and passion on this issue. I know this touched you personally, and I know you're very committed. And I'll tell you, we uh, we need you. We really need you uh, because there's a lot of people that are hurting out there. So thank you so much for joining us here on America's Workforce, okay? Thanks, Ed. It's been a pleasure. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go to New York City and check in with the New York City District Council of Carpenters, Paul Caperso, remembering 9-11. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America. 
delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And don't forget, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers, where you can find more at oh.aft.org. This is a very significant date in American history on this day. 22 years ago, we saw the planes fly into the uh, World Trade Center, the Twin Towers in New York City. Over 3,000 people died on that day. Joining us on our live line right now is Paul Caperso. Paul is president of the New York City District Council of Carpenters website, nycdistrictcouncil.com. He's been president for about four years, 37 years as a carpenter. And uh, he was in one of those buildings and left before the planes hit. What a story. Paul Caperso. Welcome back to yes. uh, America's Workforce. That uh, that day is etched in your mind forever, isn't it? It is. It is. And thanks for having me. Um, it's always nice to talk to you guys. I appreciate that. But yeah, it is. It is. So so what happened? You, there was supposed to be a meeting uh, at so that time? Uh... Uh, at the time we were working, I was working in the Trade Center, and uh, we had just finished up work in the weekend. Um, so I went there for a meeting. And we were walking through the lower levels, so the the building had six lower levels. Um, so I was walking through the lower level with the engineer of the uh, trade center and uh, the project manager we were working with, and they had gotten a call when we got probably more than halfway across. Um, and right before we got in the elevator, I said, "You know what? It's running late. Let me run to a, another job, and then I'll just come back." Um, and unfortunately, those guys went up. They didn't get out, and I was able to kind of watch the whole thing from a block or two away. It was one heck of a day, and hats off to all the responders who are suffering today. I mean, I was talking earlier about the the many first responders and trades members who are still uh, suffering with illnesses or injuries from that day. I mean, these this lingers on and on and on, and I know Congress is slow to react to help them out, but that's another story. I want to talk about that day and what you saw. I know you got the first responders, you got the iron workers. That were, I guess because they know welding they were cutting the steel so they could get to the survivors did you see that happen paul yeah yeah i did initially uh, immediately after all the trades responded and then uh, subsequently shortly after that a lot of the uh, 
contractors responded as well. But um, in order to start to free people, um, everybody tried to do what they can to get down there. So the iron workers were included. And, you know, uh, there was a lot of burning to get to a lot of that steel, uh, a lot of different techniques that we used to kind of free people up. Um, in the initial aftermath of the whole things, we uh, started to look for survivors and then originally then turned to, uh, you know, kind of a cleanup. Now, there was like a cloud of dust. Did I mean, did anybody realize that that could be dangerous as far as breathing that, that in at that time, or they just, just plowed right through it? No, everybody just kind of went through it. I mean, the initial, after the initial uh, collapse of the first tower, and when everybody, I you know, when we got into the street, you couldn't see anything, and it was just raining this gray ash, and it was probably four or five inches thick. And I was, like I said, I was a block and a half away. I was on Broadway, right? Um, and then subsequently going back and just that fire burning for probably another, you know, 18 months after the fact. So what did you do the rest of that day? I mean, I mean, you, you started off with good intentions and then everything just exploded in front of you. So initially, uh, the building I was in when they evacuated the building, um, I went down in the street and I said, Hey, you know, let me try to see if I can double back. Um, and then I kind of started doubling back. I, I got on the church street and then, uh, I can't remember the block behind it, but I was walking back and it, you know, there was trucks on fire. There was pieces and parts all over the place of, uh, of the building, um, airplane parts. Uh, I remember seeing a, a post office truck on fire with the back open. Um, and then it just, it got to be too much. And by that, like time went by very quickly. So, uh, subsequently the second tower fell, you know, it was kind of like an earthquake and then that plume of dust again. And, you know, after that, all I can do is, you know, get out of there. Yeah. So, Paul, how are you today? I know a lot of people have been suffering over the years. Are you doing okay? I'm good. I'm good. I do the uh, I do the World Trade Center health monitoring. I recommend that to all your listeners if they're eligible for it. I think they should do that. That's important. You know, as time goes by, um, you know, you lose people that you worked with or, you know, unfortunately, they, they – uh, they get sick over the time. You know, I've seen that. I've seen that as the president, as people come in, you know, looking for some kind of uh, support or, or feedback or what they can do to get help. Um, so I do recommend that. I mean, I don't think there's uh, there's some other radio stations that broadcast it continuously, tell them what to do to get help. But uh, I think sometimes people wait till it's too late. But um, mm-hmm. I recommend that. And then, you know, today is for us, we do a, a ceremony. Um, we have a ceremony in our lobby for the 18 members that we lost on 9-11. And we have a... Uh, a memorial wall made up to that effect as well. We just redid our lobby and created a new area. Um, so that'll happen this morning as well. 18 members of the New York City District Council of Carpenters. You knew yeah. you knew them pretty well, I take it, right? Um, I knew four or five of them that I had worked with, you know, and then I knew of the rest of them. You know, and then you get to know them over the years. And uh, I've talked to uh, some of their spouses or family members, you know, over the time, you know. Um, but it's a constant reminder, you know. We have a constant reminder. And how how are the relatives holding up? I mean, I, I mean, this this can never you know, heal when you take. No, they, they, there was kids that were born without parents, right? And then the, the kids were, were young when it happened, and a lot of them were, you know, through college and 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 you know, kind of. I don't want to move on with their life, but went on with their life, you know. Um, and then you know, it always comes up, like you said, every time nine eleven comes up, it rehashes all those memories, right? It's never yeah. completely out of your mind and. You know, I look out my window, I can see the Trade Center in my office, you know, and I'm there at least, you know, 
monthly, once a month, you know, looking at something or a job or, or uh, have a meeting over there, you know. Now, the rebuilding of that area, isn't that, what is that, like a memorial, uh, like a park now as a result or what? Uh, yeah, they did an area, there's an area that they made a, uh, the 9-11 uh, Memorial Museum is set up there and the uh, reflecting pond is down there. Um, you know, they've got to complete a couple more projects down there, which always, you know, kind of helps people to remember, especially in the construction industry for those who aren't familiar with it. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's a memorial down there. Yeah. Many have said that we've changed as a country because of that. I mean, never, never have we been attacked on American soil like that. Uh, when you think about it, I mean, it equates kind of like Pearl Harbor from uh, 1941, and yeah. there's some comparisons there, but this the amount here is even higher than Pearl Harbor. But do you think that we've learned from what happened on that day, in your opinion, Paul? Construction-wise or just as a, as a country? Well, both, both. If you can answer both uh, of those, go ahead. I think construction-wise we learned a lot, right? I think uh, they do a lot of different things with, uh, with emergency stairwells and uh, an emergency reaction. I think as a country, I think it's a little tough. Uh, I think people forget over time, and they need a they need a, a, to remember. And I think that this helps to some people remember, you know. And hopefully, they they reflect a little bit deeply. But uh, you know, I, yeah, I think it I, I think it helps to I think it helps the country, you know. But um, it would be better if they thought about it. I think a little bit more, right, based on the current state of affairs. And uh, I think uh, that would be helpful, you know. Yeah. One more question here before you go. As far as construction, were you surprised that those buildings came down as quickly as they did? You know, when I looked at it, and the first thing I said is I said, ah, maybe the tops will come off. You know, and then what happens if the top comes off? But I never thought that they would uh, come completely down. I never thought that. Yeah. Um, you know, I looked at it from a perspective of saying I've been in the building a thousand times, you know, and I said, okay, nobody can get down from the upper half because the plane must have went straight through, and even if you get to a stairwell, it's probably blocked off. It'd be tough yeah. to get out, you know. Um, but I never thought they'd come all the way down. Well, Paul, I know this is tough, but thank you for uh, sharing what happened on this day 22 years ago. Paul Caperso, president of the New York City District Council of Carpenters. Website is nycdistrictcouncil.com. Thank, uh, thank you so much for your time. Stay safe and stay strong, okay, brother? Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to speak. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow, the sheet metal workers and the latest on the UAW talks. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.